Mexic Clinical Pearls. Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to our new podcast series, Mexic Clinical Pearls, launched by Mexic, uh, we're a student-run Monash Emergency and Critical Care Special Interest Group. Uh, my name is John, and I have Hal here with me today. Hey guys, so we're currently final year medical students at Monash University, and we'll be delivering this first podcast on rapid sequence induction or intubation, which is also known as RSI. We're not aiming for a fully comprehensive session on all the ins and outs, but more as a general idea of what's good to know on a student level. At the end of this podcast, feel free to follow us and leave any comments or feedback. Awesome. So, how let's just get stuck right into it. What can you tell me about rapid sequence induction in a nutshell? What exactly is it? Yeah, so we decided on this topic given the nature of the current COVID-19 situation as we thought it would be a good time to brush up on our knowledge of airways from an anaesthetics perspective. Intubation is the process of inserting an endotracheal tube or an ETT down a patient's airway. Aside from the patient being conscious and able to breathe on their own, ETT insertion is the only other option in fully protecting a patient's airway. This is because the end of the ETT has an inflatable cuff which both secures its position in the patient's trachea, but also acts as a barrier to anything else which may find its way down the airway otherwise, such as foreign bodies or gastric contents. In an unwell patient, they're at risk of aspiration or airway obstruction, and a good critical care specialist would identify the need to protect the airway of these patients in advance and arrange for intubation. But what then is a rapid sequence induction or a rapid sequence intubation? RSI is a procedure where you induce or anaesthetize and paralyze a patient in very rapid succession in order to secure their airway with the ETT. You hear about it a lot in, the, in emergency situations where patients may be critically unwell and at risk of impending airway compromise, but it's not necessarily the only context where it may be used, however. I suppose it's only natural to ask the question, how is this process different from a normal induction process, like what you see in theatre prior to an operation? So the more common process you see in theatre for those usually medically well, or at least not too unwell patients, would be a routine induction. The typical process of a routine induction usually begins with a period of pre-oxygenation, where the patient's given a very high flow rate of oxygen in order to flood their tissue compartments and blood with as much oxygen as possible, as well as to expel other gases such as nitrogen from their lungs. Mm -hmm. This is to maximize the amount of time the patient's body can last without any further respiration or breathing. And this extra time is essential when we get to intubation. To illustrate my point, the safe apnea time, that is, the time someone can last without breathing before critically desaturating, is only roughly a minute in the average adult human if they were to breathe in room air, which is the normal air in the atmosphere we breathe in every day. Contrast this with the safe apnea time in a patient who has been well pre-oxygenated, which can sometimes be up to eight minutes. That's eight minutes of no breathing without any critical desaturation. Once the patient is adequately pre-oxygenated, you can administer pre-treatment agents. The role of these medications is to blunt the body's physiological response to intubation, as the physical act of inserting an ETT, which is essentially a foreign body, 
can generate a significant sympathetic nervous system response. I'm sure we all remember the time we nearly choked on a bit of food and how much panic it gave us. Now begins the induction process. You give the induction agent, which is usually either an IV or inhaled general anaesthetic. There's a lot of options and we'll discuss some of the notable ones later. Once the patient has received their induction, they should start drifting off to sleep. And it's not until they are fully asleep that you can begin to manually ventilate them with a bag valve mask. You need to ensure that they are well and truly anaesthetized because you then must give a muscle relaxant of some sort. This will paralyze their entire body, but most importantly, it will paralyze their airways and prevent any spasming. Here begins the most critical part of an intubation, inserting the endotracheal tube. It's the most critical part because you have no means of actually ventilating the patient until either the tube is in or you've given up and returned to bag mask ventilation, which is why the pre-oxygenation process was so vital in the beginning. So you remove the bag mask, tilt the patient's head back to assume what's called the sniffing position, insert the laryngoscope and lift so you can see their vocal cords. The tube will need to be inserted between the cords until the designated length, the ETT cuff is inflated, and the tube is connected to the ventilator. You need to check that the tube is in the right position, which we will talk about later, before letting the machine take control and mechanically ventilate for you. So how does an RSI differ from a routine intubation? Well, there's usually a greater sense of urgency in RSI, so there are modifications to some steps. Firstly, the pretreatment agents used to blunt the body's response to intubation may be skipped in the interest of time. The muscle relaxants used to paralyze the patient's airway are also given immediately after the induction agent without waiting for the onset of the anesthetic. There's also no middle step in bag mass ventilation of the patient after induction and prior to intubation in an RSI. Once the patient is under GA, they're ready to be tubed. There is, however, an optional additional step during intubation. Given the time critical nature of RSI, and also that many patients receiving RSI are, for many reasons, at an increased aspiration risk, pressure can be applied by an assistant on the cricoid cartilage to both better visualize the vocal cords and therefore maximize the chances of successful intubation, and also to obstruct the esophagus and prevent regurgitation of GI contents. This pressure should be maintained until the correct position of the ETT is confirmed. The reason these modifications exist is to minimize the time the patient is at risk of aspiration, that is, the time between them being conscious, until the ETT is correctly positioned and the cuff is inflated. Okay, so to quickly recap what you're saying, RSI is typically used in an emergency setting where we need to secure an emergency airway. So we assume that they're not fasted, and that's why we don't try to bag valve mask them. Otherwise, they might aspirate gastric contents from insufflation of the stomach. So in order to take out that step and make the process as fast as possible, we give a paralytic agent immediately after the induction agent. And this is essentially what differentiates an RSI from a normal induction. So John, yeah. With all this talk about the differences between RSI and routine induction, when would you actually choose to perform an RSI? 
Yeah, great question, Hal. I think outside of the theatre environment and in emergency, I actually think about the indications for R assigned three broad categories. So the first is failure of airway patency or protection. Uh, the second is failure to ventilate or oxygenate. And the third is therapeutic interventions, uh, which is a lot more specific. And I know these are very broad, so uh, I'll go into a bit more detail. When we're actually looking for airway patency, what we're really looking for is the absence of obstruction. Some signs of obstruction include mouth or neck swelling, which can be from edema or a hematoma, uh, and noisy breathing, including stridor, which is that high-pitched inspiratory wheeze, or snoring or gurgling sounds when breathing. Now, complete obstruction is a worrying sign, and you may see seesaw chest movements, otherwise known as paradoxical respiration. That's where the chest collapses and abdomen expands when you inspire air. Since you're trying to draw air against an upper uh, airway obstruction, it's most worrying if there is no chest rise at all. So conditions that you're familiar with that can lead to obstruction include maybe anaphylaxis, angioedema, or facial or neck trauma. Uh, and something else to look out for is an inhalation burn, uh, because airway edema can develop later on, and not necessarily at the start of their presentation to ED. Uh, so clinicians may even anticipate this and perform RSI prophylactically. So we've talked about airway patency in a nutshell. Uh, another indication for RSI is uh, failure to protect the airway. So essentially what we mean here is that the patient is at risk of aspirating, whether it be gastric or nasal secretions or whatnot. Uh, for example, if they have a low GCS, typically we say a GCS under 8, uh, they're at increased risk of aspiration because they won't be able to cough or swallow in order to protect their airway. You may have heard GCS under 8, intubate, uh, this is a nice rule of thumb to go with, but not always true as with most things in medicine. A typical example is severe head injury. You may not have a GCS under 8, but it can definitely cause a loss of your protective reflexes. Uh, so head injury with a dropping GCS is a very important indication for RSI. So thinking about airway patency, remember two things. Number one, GCS under eight, and number two, severe head injury. Now we'll think about the second category in our indications for RSI. It's the failure to ventilate or oxygenate. This can essentially be understood as respiratory failure. So what is respiratory failure? It's essentially a process where there's failure of adequate gas exchange, whether that's getting oxygen into the body or getting rid of carbon dioxide. You'll often hear the dichotomy between type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure. So type 1 respiratory failure, it's in a nutshell, hypoxemia without hypercapnia. Type 2 is hypoxemia with hypercapnia. So if we go back to type 1, think about it this way. You have adequate ventilation with inadequate oxygen exchange. So you have good amounts of oxygen getting into the alveolar, but you don't have a good enough oxygen exchange. So that could either be from VQ mismatch or pulmonary shunting. 
So VQ mismatch is by far the most common cause of hypoxemia. It's where the ventilation of the alveoli don't match the perfusion, leading to inadequate oxygenation in the blood. Pulmonary shunting, on the other hand, is essentially when the VQ ratio hits zero. In other words, the alveoli are getting adequate perfusion, but there is zero ventilation in these pathological areas. This is called a shunt. If you think about it, in a shunt, even if you gave 100% oxygen, this would not really change the VQ ratio in these pathological areas. It would remain at zero. And so this is how we, in general, can tell if a patient has type 1 respiratory failure from VQ mismatch or from shunting. Uh, but let's actually go through some examples. So VQ mismatch can occur for a range of reasons. Let's think about uh, something that we're all familiar with, a PE, where there's normal ventilation, right? So the oxygen's getting down into the alveolar fine, but there's areas of little to no perfusion because of the emboli. So they have high VQ ratios, right? And then there's also areas of overperfusion due to blood diversion. So everywhere else besides um, these spots with the emboli, you have a low VQ ratio. So usually giving 100% oxygen will help with this kind of hypoxemia. Some other examples include pneumonia, severe asthma, COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, or pulmonary hypertension. Now, pulmonary shunting. You may be familiar with this term from embryology or from anatomical shunts like a patent ductus arteriosus or an ASD or a VSD. Uh, but in crit care, you may see shunting due to things like severe pulmonary edema, whether it be cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic. So because there's fluid in the alveoli, giving 100% oxygen won't significantly help with the hypoxemia, right? Because it can't actually get down uh, to where it needs to get down with the pneumocytes. Now you can also have shunting due to pulmonary contusion caused by chest trauma, for example. But in any case, if you suspect a patient has shunting, 100% oxygen won't work. You may need to consider giving them something like PEEP, so positive end expiratory pressure, so that the alveoli actually open up. But that's enough for type 1 respiratory failure. Let's talk about type 2 respiratory failure. So what actually happens in it is that you have now inadequate ventilation. Okay, so type 1, you had adequate ventilation. Type 2, you have inadequate ventilation. And so this leads to both a low oxygen in your bloodstream as well as high carbon dioxide. This is very important to remember. All the causes of type 2 respiratory failure have something to do with hypoventilation. Think about the causes of hypoventilation from the brain to the lungs. So if we start with the brain, things about the CNS. We can have a drug overdose or a brainstem lesion. This will cause hypoventilation. You might have neuromuscular issues like Guillain-Barre syndrome or neuromuscular disease. Or you could just have respiratory muscle exhaustion from things like severe asthma uh, in a patient who's already on maximal therapy or in an acute exacerbation of COPD. Uh, and the last thing to think about are the chest wall or pleural disorders. So things like kyphoscoliosis or morbid obesity. Now these are less likely to cause acute, to cause acute uh, respiratory failure, 
So it's less likely to be an ED or crit care presentation, but it's still important to be aware of. And uh, pneumothoraces, uh, so plural disorders, can also cause type 2 respiratory failure. But in these cases, you want to put a chest tube in uh, rather than you know, think about the different ways that you can ventilate the patient. Uh, but in a nutshell, remember, type 2 respiratory failure, it's hypoxemia with hypercapnia, and it's predominantly due to hypoventilation. Now, we can usually try to manage respiratory failure uh, with treatment of the specific cause and non-invasive ventilation. But we always have to be ready for RSI. We especially get to this stage when the patient has persisting or worsening tachypnea, uh, as we've you know, alluded to before, where it leads to respiratory muscle exhaustion. Now, this will not just lead to hypoxemia and acidemia, but also a loss of airway protection later on because the diaphragm fails to allow for coughing to clear secretions. Okay, so we've talked about failure of airway patency and failure of airway protection, and we've talked about the failure to ventilate, so get oxygen into the lungs, and failure to oxygenate, uh, and so that's your type 1 respiratory failure. And now we'll talk about the last category that I think about. And those are specific uh, interventions that we do. So this isn't as important for us to remember, um, but some things you might hear about are if a patient has status epilepticus that's refractory to benzos, barbiturates, and um, anti-epileptics, then at this stage, uh, people might choose to use things like propofol or ketamine, which necessitates an intubation. Some other indications include uh, septic shock, uh, or for humanitarian reasons, so if a patient is very uncooperative to their own harm and they require an urgent scan or urgent transport, then we actually think about um, doing RSI as well. But these really aren't too important for us to remember at our level. Now, just as a small side note, uh, partly because I think it's uh, interesting, but also because as medical students, we'll actually be going into theatre, Let's think very briefly about the indications of RSI in theatre. Remember that we're trying to prevent the risk of aspiration by doing RSI and skipping the need for a bag valve masking a patient. So logically, you will perform RSI if a patient isn't fasted and requires emergency surgery, or if they have known GORD or a hiatus hernia, or if they have things like gastroparesis uh, from... Uh, conditions like diabetes or Parkinson's, or if they're pregnant. So these are some considerations that an anaesthetist might have for doing an RSI in the theatre environment. So just to quickly recap the indications for RSI outside of theatre. Number one, failure of airway patency or protection. Number two, failure to ventilate or oxygenate, otherwise known as respiratory failure. And number three, specific therapeutic interventions. Now, when we think about the contraindications, um, they're actually mostly relative. That's because if someone needs RSI, you're very high up in your advanced life support ABCs. The most important thing to think about here that you may call a relative contraindication is if a patient is anticipated to have a difficult airway to intubate. It can be a dangerous place to be in uh, if the patient is completely knocked out and not able to get a tube down their throat. And it's 
really important to know beforehand how difficult an airway might actually be. A useful mnemonic people use to assess difficulty for ETT insertion is LEMON. So L-E-M-O-N. The first thing you do is look. So you look and quickly assess if the patient may or might, may not have a difficult intubation. Some uh, general indicators that a patient is going to have a difficult intubation is if they have a small mandible, a large tongue, or a short and thick neck. And then you uh, do a quick evaluation. So this is called the 332 rule. Uh, essentially, you want to see if you can uh, fit three fingers into an open mouth uh, between the upper and lower incisors, and three fingers between the edge of the chin and the hyoid bone, and then two fingers between the hyoid bone and thyroid cartilage. Uh, so if you have a look uh, on yourself using this 332 rule, you'll find that it's actually a very fast assessment. And uh, if they fit into this rule, then they're going to have a relatively easier intubation. Uh, the next thing, so L-E-M, M stands for melon patty. So this is essentially assessed by asking the patient to open their mouth widely and stick out their tongue as much as they can. Uh, and then you want to see how much of the pharynx that you can see. But this is usually used more for elective procedures. So in the emergency department, uh, or if we're in crit care, we don't really assess this much. Okay, so we're up to L-E-M-O. O stands for obstruction. So there's mainly three things to look for. Uh, look for any buildup of secretions in their mouth. Uh, here for any stridor. Uh, and you might also notice any dysphonia. And then N, so neck mobility. Uh, when you intubate a patient, it's best to have the patient's neck in an extended position. So if a patient was in a cervical collar, for example, uh, then this would not be possible. And so neck mobility is also a very important consideration. So if you think that someone is going to have a difficult airway, you need to be ready for a failed intubation. And we'll talk more about how to manage that in our next podcast on RSI. Okay, so we've quickly talked about anticipating a difficult intubation. Now, there are also some specific things that you can omit or modify compared to a typical RSI. Um, so, for example, if someone has a succimethonium allergy or if they're hyperkalemic, uh, you'll probably consider a different muscle relaxant to succimethonium and consider maybe rocuronium. Uh, if these drugs don't make much sense to you yet, don't worry about it uh, because how we'll go over them uh, later. Now some other relative contraindications include maybe profound hypoxemia or metabolic acidosis where they may not actually be able to tolerate a period of apnea and you need to consider variations uh, on RSI but really these are quite beyond our scope. The main thing to remember about contraindications in RSI is that there are no real absolute contraindications and you want to try and anticipate the difficult airway early. All right, awesome. So this pretty much sums up uh, a brief introduction to rapid sequence induction, and we will continue this uh, in our second podcast. Um, but essentially, what we think is important for students to know about RSI is summarized by the indications of RSI. So remember the three, failure of airway patency or protection, failure to ventilate or oxygenate, and then some specific therapeutic interventions which aren't as important for us to remember. Now also remember, lemon, so look, evaluate 332, melon patty, obstruction, and neck mobility, and this assesses the difficulty of intubation.
And the last thing that's really important for you to remember as a medical student is the triad of anesthetics. So that's analgesia, anesthesia, and paralysis. And so we've kind of touched on that a little bit as well here. Next episode, Hal will talk in more depth about the actual RSI procedure and the steps involved. And uh, just to let you guys know, since we're in kind of a lockdown at the moment, Hal and I have actually recorded this separately on our own devices, um, as you may actually be able to tell. But hopefully as things progress and we can have better recording equipment and facilities, uh, you can listen to the same content but at a higher audio quality. In any case, um, please let us know what content you'd like us to cover. We'll be having a mix of student-level content as well as things that are slightly beyond what is required at our level but is still interesting and common, kind of like this podcast on RSI. We'll also have interviews with different clinicians about their careers and lives and interesting patient cases as well to talk through. So until next time, stay safe and keep learning.